Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you. Whether you're here in the room or joining us online, we're honored to have you along for the ride. As many of you know, we're in the second week of a series that we've called The Essentials that's essentially, thank you, all about what someone actually needs to believe in order to be a Christian. And as I mentioned last week, I wanted to do this series because whether you realize it or not, uh, over the past couple of decades, many people, and especially young people, have walked away from the Christian faith because of things that, at least in my opinion, really aren't essential to the Christian faith. In other words, they're walking away unnecessarily. And if you were to interview one of them and ask them why, and I actually have done that a few times because that is how I roll, uh, they'll tell you things like, well, they don't want to be a part of a group that's associated with certain behaviors, a group of people who often seem, well, made us a list, anti-intellectual, anti-science, politically monolithic. Isn't that awesome? Somebody said, Christians are politically monolithic. I had to look that up. That's like, wow. Okay. And then hostile to people who don't believe like they do. Said a bit differently, Christianity in our time has been experiencing a profound challenge that stems from certain Christians or groups of Christians adding what they identify as non-negotiable things to the list of things that must be believed in order to be a Christian. But, but here's the thing. These things that they're adding aren't necessarily what Jesus intended for his followers. So, so of course, that brings us to the question around which this series is organized. And the question goes like this. Um, so what beliefs are essential to the Christian faith? In other words, like what must someone affirm in order to be a Christian? What's essential and what's not? And uh, just in case you weren't with us last week, what I want to do is begin with just a little bit of review. Um, because last week we began this series by exploring an incredibly significant conversation in which Jesus asked his first followers, who they thought that he was. In other words, midway through their time with him, after what they had seen and heard and experienced, he's like, who do you think that I am? And uh, one of his disciples, a man named Peter, answered Jesus. He said, well, we think that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, and, and we explained the context behind Peter's answer in detail last week. If you missed it, you can go catch up on the website. But essentially, when you consider the context, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, we believe that you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. The Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. We believe you're someone the Old Testament prophets thought of as the son of man. We believe you're the one who God has anointed to be the king of the entire human race forever. And it's a big statement. And here's what we noticed last week, and it was so interesting. In response to Peter's proclamation, Jesus didn't correct Peter. He told Peter that he was correct. Like, he said, yes, I really am God's final king. And, and then at the end of our time last week, I argued that that reality of who Jesus is is actually the first and by far most important essential of the Christian faith. And we, we said it this way. We said, in order to be a Christian, it is essential to believe that Jesus is God's son and our king. Okay, so now that established, what I want to do with our time today is explore a second essential. And to get us going in that direction, I need to ask you a really important question. And the question goes like this. What do you think about when you think about God? 
what do you think about when you think about God? Like what pictures come to mind? What adjectives would you use to describe God? And uh, if you're like many of the people whom I've had conversations with over the years, you may confess that you, your picture of God is something like this. There you go. And this is, of course, an image I found online of the Greek god Zeus. And, uh, you know, I'm far from an ancient historian, but I can at least tell you that in ancient times, a large group of people in what became sort of the Western world believed Zeus to be the, the chief among the gods, and he actually was responsible for or assigning roles to all the other gods. Uh, Zeus was also generally believed to be the one who sent lightning and rain and wind. And if you were to ask an ancient person, you know, what's Zeus like? Like, what's his disposition? They'd say, you know, well, don't tell him I said this, but he's kind of easily angered, (laughs) at times insecure, and really quick to bring about correction on anyone who steps out of line, whatever way he's decided to describe staying in the lines. And I say all that to say that in the two decades or so that I've served as a pastor, I've had more than a few conversations with friends in which they confess that they live with sort of a low to mid-grade fear of divine retribution because of something they had done. In other words, when they think about God, they think about Zeus. (laughs) I'll never forget this. I even had a friend um, tell me one day that he felt compelled to quit his job at a local grocery store because they kept scheduling him on Saturdays. And I said, because you want to watch college football? And he said, no. He said, I grew up in a stream of Christianity where I was taught that as a follower of Jesus, I was required to keep the Jewish Sabbath. So Christian, you know, we worship on Sunday. The Jews would worship on Saturday, technically Friday night to Saturday night, but you know what I mean, right? So Jews don't work on the Saturday, and this is what this guy was taught. And, and he said, you know, I remember the last day I went to work and I was walking from my car into the, the store and there were clouds overhead. And I literally had this wave of anxiety that I was going to get hit by a lightning bolt on my way in. And I initially laughed and he was serious. And, and, and he was serious. He quit his job. But, but I'm telling you, all over our world, pretty much since humans first began to develop religions, people have viewed the divine realm with suspicion. And as a result, for the vast majority of the history of religion, the adjectives people would use to describe their faith would be words like anxiety and fear and guilt and shame. And this isn't only true in the ancient world, but it's true in our world. For some of us, we would say that's sort of the religious framework that that I grew up in. All that to say, what we think about when we think about God is a really big deal because the picture we have of God can either facilitate or hinder our efforts to build a healthy relationship with him. Okay, so now at this point, if you've been paying attention, and I super hope you have, um, you may very well have a question. And it goes something like this okay, I see what you're saying, but how can we possibly know what God is like? The reason we have anxiety and fear and guilt and shame is because we don't really know. I mean, he's somewhere out there, he's infinite, and we're finite. So from our vantage point, he's more or less unknowable, isn't he? And, and, and that's actually what I want to talk about with the rest of our time together today, because as it turns out, there is a way for us to really know what God is like because 
he has revealed what he is like, not just through stories, but like in space and time. And to show you what I mean, what I want to do is just like last week, I want you to imagine that we've all crammed into a time-traveling DeLorean. You knew it was coming. And we've journeyed back to the city of Jerusalem in the year 30 AD. Um, here's an artist's rendering of what the city would have looked like at that time. Obviously, the Jewish temple was the prominent structure in the city. Um, and, I, and I want you to imagine that upon our arrival, we begin to walk through crowded city streets until we find ourselves standing in front of a, a building in which we were told that Jesus and his first followers were having a meal together. For the sake of the illustration, let's say we knock on the door and we're invited to walk up the stairs into the room where Jesus was midway through an incredibly significant conversation with his disciples. And let's also imagine that we were invited to listen to what he was saying. And before I show you what Jesus was saying, um, there's a piece of context you need to know because you need to know that at this point in his life, Jesus knew something that his first disciples didn't know. Uh, namely, that later that night, he would be arrested by some Jewish religious leaders, falsely accused, tried, and sentenced to die on a Roman cross. And so consequently, in this, during this meal, he knows he only has a few moments left with his first followers. And, and, and he also knows that even after all they'd seen and heard and experienced, well, they were still confused about Jesus' mission for his time on earth. I mean... During this conversation, they still believed that Jesus would soon publicly proclaim himself to be the Messiah, organize an army to expel the Romans from Israel, and then set up his forever kingdom on earth, like in the city of Jerusalem. Those were their expectations for Jesus that night. And so consequently, they had not yet recognized the fullness of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so Jesus that night was having a conversation with them in an attempt to help them see what they had not yet seen. And he began with these words. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And so it's super easy for us to miss. But when Jesus said this, his disciples would have been stunned. Like we read it and we go, what's the big deal? But they would have been stunned because Jesus essentially just told them, guys, I want you to trust me like you trust God. And so from the perspective of those first Jewish disciples, Jesus' words were either incredibly blasphemous or undeniably true. There was no other way to think about it. And so as I imagine it, there would have just been this, this tension, this emotional tension that flooded into the room. And as Jesus continued to speak, he didn't resolve the tension. Instead, he said this. He said, I want you to trust me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And then he said this, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And I can almost guarantee to you, Jesus' first disciples were confused by what Jesus said here because, I mean, remember, they thought he was about to set up his earthly kingdom and he essentially told them, no, that's not the plan. I'm about to go away and then I'm eventually going to come back to take you back where it was that I went when I left. 
And again, they would have been absolutely confused. And I think they would look at each other like, he's doing it again. Sometimes he does this. No one knows. Let's just nod and smile. Maybe it'll get better, right? Yeah. And we actually know they were confused because one of the disciples, a man named Thomas, asked Jesus a question. He says, okay, Lord, boss, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? In other words, okay, Jesus, we know that you know what you're talking about, okay? But here's the thing. We're not following. I mean, you just said you're going, but we shouldn't worry because you're going to come back. And that, you know, when when you come back, and, and we don't need to worry too because we know the way to where you're going. But here's the thing. I mean, I hate to do this, but we're all thinking it. We don't know the way. At, at least we don't think we know the way. And in response, Jesus said this, which did not clear it up, by the way. I am the way. Oh. And the truth and the life. And then he says this, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, guys, you actually do know the way if you know me. See, no one comes to the Father, or as it turns out, even comes to really know the Father except through me. And uh, as his disciples were still absorbing the implications of what Jesus just said, he pushed them further because he looked them in the eye and he said, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In other words, guys, listen, the more you get to know me, the more you get to know him. I mean, seriously, let that sink in for a minute. I mean, think about this for you and me. If this is true, if, if the more we get to know Jesus, the more we get to know God, then of course the question that falls out of it is, goes like this. Is Jesus what you think about when you think about God? Do the words Jesus and God elicit like a similar emotional response for you or do they evoke different feelings? Because I'm telling you, and this is such good news, if what you think about um, when you think about Jesus is different than what you think about when you think about God, then according to Jesus, you need to modify your picture of God. Because as it turns out, one of the reasons Jesus spent so much time on earth before he died on the cross was to show us what God is like in a way that we can actually comprehend. I'm convinced that's why he said what he said that day to his first followers, that anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. And again, the emotion in the room, the disciples would have been very disoriented. These were new thoughts for them. And so I would argue that they responded to this revelation like most of us would have responded. In fact, as I imagine the scene, like one of the disciples sitting around the table, a man named Philip, sort of slowly raised his hand and said very respectfully, because this is Jesus, right? He goes, um, okay, didn't follow that Lord. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. He's like asking the same thing a different way. And I don't think that Philip is trying to be impolite. I, again, I think the guys were just confused. We, we also have to remember something. I, I mean, a few days before this conversation, they had been witness to Jesus literally raising a man named Lazarus from the dead. And so in this conversation, they were well aware of the fact that Jesus was way more than a man. He was doing things that people just don't do, that even prophets don't do. But see, the idea that he might actually be God in a human body 
was an absolutely overwhelming thing for them to consider. And so Philip respectfully says to Jesus, hey, could you clarify? Jesus, did you mean what you just said? Because if you meant that, then that changes everything. And moreover, we have to remember all of Jesus' first disciples, they were Jewish. So they had grown up in synagogue. They had grown up around those stories in the Old Testament. And so the pictures that they had of God were very informed by those stories. And as helpful as all those stories are, there was still a lot of mystery surrounding God and how he worked in the world and how he worked through his people. Especially because in the first century, Israel was under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so many Jewish people had thought maybe that God had just abandoned them. And so again, there was this mystery surrounding God and how he worked. And so that day, Jesus' disciples were convinced that he had come from God. That was inarguable. And they said, you know, we believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the Christ. We believe you're the Son of Man. We believe you're God's final king. But see, the idea that to be with him was to be with him was was just too much for them to consider. And I think that's why Philip said to Jesus, hey, would you show us the Father? So Jesus, show us the Father. And, and, and as I imagine it, as Philip asked the question in Jesus' mind, he would have been like, dude, what do you think I've been doing for the last three years? It's exactly what I came to do. And then, and then he just said it. Don't you know me? So Philip says, show us the Father. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father How can you say, show us the Father? And I can't even tell you how many times I've read this passage, but if I'm emotionally present while I'm reading it, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up every single time. Because what Jesus says here is so full of wonder and awe and hope and joy and peace. I mean, if you think about it, if Jesus was speaking the truth that day to his disciples, and I'm absolutely convinced that he was, then the implications to this statement are astonishing. It means that the closest that you can get to understanding what God is like is Jesus. It means that according to Jesus, when we think about God, we should think about him. And check out what Jesus says next, just in case the disciples weren't following. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? He says, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Then he says, believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You all have seen things that are impossible and yet undeniable. Unbelievable, and yet you saw them happen. That was to point you to who I am. You have to understand If you've seen me, you've seen him. And if you've heard me, you've heard him. And if you've watched me, you've watched him. Because one of the reasons that I came was to put his heart for you and his heart for the world on display. 
He wants to be known in a personal way. And I know that you've read the accounts of what he has done in the past, but now, in your day, he has come to dwell among you because I have come to dwell among you. So you want to know what God is like? Watch me. Listen to me. Lean in because I've come to show you. Now, now, now it's possible, uh, especially if you grew up in certain streams of Christianity, that the clarity with which Jesus affirmed who he was surprised you here. And, and if you're new and you're, you're kind of kicking the tires on faith and you've always wondered about Jesus, maybe you think he's a great prophet or he's a great man, he's a great teacher, which he was all those things. But this idea that he was a creator of flesh, you're like, I don't know about that. Are we sure that's, that's right at the center of Christianity? And if you were to ask me that question, I would say, absolutely. And you should know that this idea of who Jesus was, but is, was repeatedly affirmed in letters that make up most of the New Testament of the Bible. In other words, from the very beginning, this belief about the identity of Jesus was seen as essential to the Christian faith. And I want to show you three quick examples, sort of rapid fire. Uh, The first comes from a letter to early Christians who lived in Greece, and it was written a few decades after Jesus' resurrection by a pastor named Paul. And here's what he says to them about Jesus. He said, the Son, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So God is somewhere else and yet somehow here. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. In other words, Paul wrote to these early Christians that in every conceivable way, Jesus was the creator in flesh. To see him was to see him. Then in another letter written to a different town in Greece around the same time, um, as a way to encourage early followers of Jesus to take on a posture of humility, Paul wrote the following. He said, in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he said, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. You say, what kind of death? The worst death conceivable in the ancient world, death on a cross. In other words, Paul wrote that because of who he was, literally God in flesh, Jesus modeled a breathtaking posture of humility that he intends for his followers to emulate. So I have to show you one more just because I couldn't pick. Sorry. Um, I want to show you how a man named John began his account of the life of Jesus. So there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, And John was one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. And as far as we can tell, he lived longer than any of the other disciples. Uh, Anyway, late in his life, John served as a pastor to a group of churches along the western coast of what is today Turkey. And uh, near the end of his life, he had a sense that his time on earth was coming to an end. He sat down to write his account of Jesus' life. And I mean, it had been probably five decades since his time with Jesus. And as he sat down to reflect on all he had seen and all he had heard and all he had experienced, and, and he wanted his readers to understand what he had understood about Jesus, 
He said he began his account with what he believed to be the most important consideration of all. Here's how John begins his account of the life of Jesus. He wrote, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He says, through him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then a few verses later, John gives us what scholars tell us is the thesis statement for John's entire gospel. He wrote this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then he goes on to say this, we, meaning I, meaning me and the other 12 disciples and a bunch of other people have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It's like John's point It was that as incredible as it was in Jesus, the one through whom everything was created, put on flesh and blood and walked this earth so that we could see what he's like. So if you think about it, this is why those four accounts of the life of Jesus are so invaluable because they literally document Jesus' revelation of what God is like. Said a bit differently, when you read the words of Jesus as recorded by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you are, those, if you have an old Bible, the red letter ones, you know what I mean? Until they realize colorblind people like me can't read the red as well, so then we got rid of it. Thank you, publishers among us. Yes, okay, yeah. But when you read those red letter words, you're actually reading the words of God And then when you read about how Jesus responded to sinners and prodigals and Jewish people and Gentile people and even stuffy religious people, because they had those back then, okay? You actually get to see how God feels about sinners and prodigals and Jews and Gentiles and even stuffy religious people. I guess you could say that God didn't just send Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins. I mean, that was... That was his initial mission, but before he did that, he sent Jesus into the world to show the world and the people in the world to show and tell what he's like. And as it turns out, and this really is the best news ever, he's gracious and he's humble. And he's compassionate. And he's merciful. And he's kind. And he's giving. And he's forgiving. And he's empathic. And he's loving. In fact, he's love incarnate. What's more, he's with you. And he's for you. And he's ahead of you, inviting you one step at a time to turn away from sin and towards life because he loves you and wants the best for you. The the almost too good to be true news is that Jesus came to show us what God is like and God is good. He's so, so good. And, 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 And so that brings me to what I believe to be the second essential of the Christian faith. And it it goes like this. Simply, Jesus came to show us what God is like. The first one, Jesus is God's son and our king. The second, Jesus came to show us what God is like. 
And it also brings me to the question of what this reality does, or maybe better should do, to our understanding of God. Because fortunately, God is not like Zeus. (laughs) He's like Jesus. And so consequently, my guess is that for a whole bunch of us, our picture of God may need some renovating. We need to reframe our understanding of God, including what he thinks about us and what he thinks about people who are nothing like us in light of the life of Jesus. Because according to Jesus, both the only way to the Father and the best way to know the Father is to get to know the Son. And we'll pick it up there next week. But for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time together in prayer. And once again this week, if you're joining us um, and you have a heavy load, life is, life is tough right now, and you know, they say the talk was fine, but I really need to just talk to someone, like one-on-one. We'd love to meet you under the screen to the left and offer a prayer for you. Uh, But for the rest of us, let me close our time. Heavenly Father, we are gathered here because 2,000 years ago, you sent your one and only Son to come among us as one of us so that we might know you as a God who loves his creation, who loves broken, messy people just as they are and who loves broken, messy people too much to let them stay the way they are. So you thank you for meeting us in grace and inviting us forward. I pray for friends who, uh, because of different religious experiences, have never seen how beautiful you really are. I pray that that this talk would haunt them. Really, Jesus' words would haunt them in wonderful ways. And they might see you not only as their creator, but as the lover of their souls who desires to be with them forever and has made a way for that to happen. And so this morning, we thank you and we bless you and we worship you and we praise you in the name of of Jesus, the name above all names. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to your friends. We'll see you next week for part three of The Essentials.